The presenting sponsor of Sober Stories is Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits. That's Liars is an L-Y-R-E, but it's also not to liars, like the dirty kind, because they have an affinity for wordplay that makes my copywriter heart sing. Liars was created by a couple Brits on a quest to replicate and replicate well as many different alcoholic spirits as possible, allowing us to drink our way. And y'all know me, my way is without a drop of ethanol. Their name actually gives a nod to the Australian lyrebird, which can mimic just about any sound. I've used liars in my mocktail making for truly years now. I think my first introduction was probably the orange sec, which took my N.A. margarita game from sad and depressing to good enough to make my normie partner say, uh, there's no way this isn't the real thing. <laughs> Except now, my margarita doesn't ruin my life and throw my mental health in the garbage. Grab the margarita set for two different kinds of tequila alternatives and that orange sec I was talking about. Classico is my new favorite, though. I packed a cooler of them last year for the lake and the river and the beach and the pool. <laughs> Their pre-mixed ready-to-drink canned beverages are a great solution for those moments when you want something refreshing and celebratory in your hand, but you don't want the consequences of booze. You'll probably want to go ahead and hit add to cart to the Classico case and get that free shipping. As you're building out your non-alcoholic bar cart this spring, head over to liars.com, use code SOBERSTORIES1010, that's S-O-B-E-R-S-T-O-R-I-E-S, the number one, the number zero, the letter T, the letter E, and the letter N for 10% off your purchase. We'll pop that in the show notes too. Liars gives you the freedom to drink your way, to not just provide an alternative to those who don't wish to imbibe alcohol, but to ensure that everyone can enjoy the mirth and the merriment of a soiree or shindig. God, their copywriter's good. Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the power and change that can come from really, really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the magic happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bowen, and it's a huge honor to be Chief Story Steward around here. With our guests, we pull back the curtain on the good, the bad, and sometimes the downright ugly of what it looks like to ditch the booze, changing the world one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? In honor of Pride Month this June, we're bringing you a month's worth of sober stories highlighting the beautiful spectrum of folks in the LGBTQIA plus community. The data tells us that this community experiences higher rates of mental health and substance use challenges. According to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, conducted by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, compared to those who identify as heterosexual, those who identify as gay or lesbian are two times more likely to experience substance use disorder. Those who identify as bisexual are three times more likely to experience substance use disorder. And those who are unsure how to identify their sexual identity are five times more likely to experience substance use disorder. And And we know that the increase in alcohol use during the pandemic has also disproportionately impacted the LGBTQIA plus community, a 32% increase versus the 14% increase in the U.S. population at large. Though we know the data, the way alcohol impacts this vibrant community, we choose to celebrate this month. The diversity, the beauty, and the really, really good storytelling. Join us in celebrating Pride this month and every month, and let's tell good stories. Hey, hey, Sober Stories crew. Glad to meet you back here on this lovely Friday. We've noticed more folks tuning in in the last few weeks, and I want to welcome you. If this is your first episode, here on Sober Stories, we celebrate the diversity of the sober and sober curious and whatever you want to call it, experience, and we love a good story. Today's guest is Victoria Tauri, yoga therapist and counseling grad student, and also a dear friend of mine. Victoria is based in Austin, Texas, and her work focuses on helping women find ease from the discomfort of relational trauma, broken identity, and stress. She identifies as a queer bisexual woman, an identity she fully embraced after leaving alcohol behind. Victoria and I dug into some really juicy topics today, like how sobriety helped her put the pieces of herself together and what exactly love addiction is. After you give today's episode a listen, tag Victoria and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. Here we go. All right, my friends, welcome back to another episode of Snipper Stories. I am so excited to bring a conversation with my dear friend, Victoria Towery. Victoria, welcome to Snipper Stories. Hi, Beth. Hello. All right. Well, I know all there is to know about you in your bio, but for those who are not familiar with you, give us the high notes of who you are, where you are, what you do, who you life with, all of the all of the cliff notes. Yeah, yeah. So I am currently a yoga therapist in Austin, Texas. I work here in a studio, but also uh, remotely, mostly with women. Um, we focus on 
identity, on um, codependency, uh, and healing from from trauma. Um, I dabble in some grief a little bit too. Um, that always just tends to come up anyways. Before that, I have about 10 years experience in the world of finance. So a very uh, non-linear uh, <laughs> you know, journey mm -hmm. to what I do today, right? Not at all uh, the background that you expect to have. However, um, I'm also now moving into being a licensed mental health professional. So I'm in the training for that. Um, I've, I've got a daughter, which is wonderful. Um, she keeps me on my toes and <laughs> um, reflects back to me all that I have left to, right. to work on. Yeah, it's really great. And, um, and a husband too, um, I am sober. I like the word sober. Some people mm -hmm. call it alcohol free or what have you. I like sober. It's short mm -hmm. and sweet and to the point, and it kind of throws people off guard. And I like that. <laughs> um, and I'm also queer. So yes. I, yeah, I, um, I was saying this to you earlier. I was like all the whole year I'm queer, except for in June, I'm queer as hell. I just yeah. really put it out there. Um, I'm actually, I just warmed up my coffee and my coffee mug says, I just look straight. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. This is my June. This is designated June mug. So. June mug. Yeah. We're, we're getting real uh, spicy in June this year. I also love that you have a coffee maker in your office. I can see that in the corner. At arm's reach. Yeah. That's, that's the next level stuff. And I think I need to like make a coffee station in here, even though my coffee pot's right through the door. So no, you know there. what? I, this is not good self-care. I could be taking some walks to the kitchen and get myself out of my chair, but yeah. I don't, this is well, very convenient and I don't suggest it. It's kind to yourself. We'll go with that. We'll go with that. It is kind to myself. Yes. Okay. I love that you noted what wording works for you, what language works for you, because one of the things we talk about here is language and labels and identities and things we take on and what feels good. And I really love the variety of words and labels that people bring to sober stories that really fits them and feels like an identity and a version of this that feels really good. I also call myself sober. Sometimes I'll say alcohol free if I'm like, I guess, like you said, like trying to like soften the blow a little bit, but like I'm sober, sober. Right. like I'm sober because I drink two bottles of wine every night sober. So I really think that that's such an important and, and often talked about piece here, but tell us the story of that. How did you become sober? Where, where did the, this begin? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and I've been in the sober space for a while now. So I have like an elevator pitch of my story around sobriety. And so we want to be spicy here. So I'm going to take it farther back <laughs> and the space. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to take it farther back. I, um, Let's, you know, I, I quote unquote got sober when I was 27 and when I was 27, I didn't call it that I called it taking a break mm. or whatever. I didn't even use the word alcohol because that was itchy and uncomfortable. And yes. I didn't like the label. We could come back to that. But when I was really in it, I, um, was 2021, <laughs> I did not drink in high school, but mm -hmm. then I went to college, did the sorority thing and drink, you know, like a sorority girl does. Right. And I ended up getting, for lack of a better word, kicked out of college because I could not afford it. So while I was busy watching my friends graduate, I had to move back home. I had to quickly get a job. I ended up getting a job in politics, which is what I wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, that's what I wanted to do when I graduated. I got to sit at some very big tables that I otherwise wouldn't have. It, um, really stroked my ego, mm. but in order to shove down the shame of watching my friends do the thing that I really wanted to do, I started drinking mm. and it was accessible. And you know what? We'll, we'll just take it to another flavor of honesty. I was drinking. And also I was, just dabbling in a cocktail of mm -hmm. different prescription drugs. Mm. Um, I remember sitting at a table and just to protect the identity, um, there was a, just a higher staff member who pulled out this like gallon Ziploc bag. <laughs> so if anybody's like, oh, politics, like, real politics isn't that bad. Let me tell you. Yeah. A higher staff member pulled out a gallon Ziploc bag of just a lot of orange bottles <laughs> and was like, what do you need to get through oh. today? I was 21. 
Oh my God. Maybe 22 at that point, maybe reaching on 22. Um, the time like, this is state politics too, not even national Right. This politics. is state politics. This yeah. is low level state Senator politics. Um, but here's the thing. And this is where I have a lot of compassion for myself in that moment. I was really struggling. I was having panic attacks. I got kicked out of school where I was, mm. I held a lot of officer positions and was on student government, right? So I got kicked off of that pedestal. So I clawed my way to the next pedestal I could find. And drugs and alcohol, drugs were just a blip in the moment, right? Sure. It wasn't a very big part of my story, but it, it is part of my story. They helped me shove down the shame and bring me the connection that I needed. Mm. Um, it's going to surprise me if we don't get into talking about love addiction today. So we'll just bring it out in the air now. <laughs> On top of being sober and queer as hell, I am a recovering love addict. So my, which is for people who aren't familiar with that is like a codependency on crack mm -hmm. is a little bit more of severe codependency. So in that disconnection that I had from leaving college, I found new connection and I would mm. do anything to hold on to it, mm -hmm. including jeopardizing my relationship with my boyfriend, who is mm -hmm. my now husband, um, hurting my family, blacking out, not knowing where I was the next morning. Anyways, I, I kind of hit a rock bottom there. And like most people's stories, that was not enough for me to stop. Right. I hit a rock bottom there. I remember coming home one night, my phone was dead. Um, my boyfriend now husband thought that I cheated on him. Mm. I just, my whole world just like blew up in this one night where I had spent the night drinking and really who knows what else. <laughs> who knows? Uh, truly, <laughs> you know, it was, it was rough. And, um, that at least was enough to get me out of politics at that mm. point. Then I got into oil and gas, not so much better, but at least the partying stopped at five or the, you know, like there was Ugh. an end point yeah. right? we weren't like going in through the night. And I kind of had a little bit of a wake up call of what I was doing in my relationships, but mm. the habit of trying to subside anxiety and the panic attacks, but by way of whatever alcohol I could get my hands on that mm -hmm. stayed. It wasn't until I got out of oil and gas, moved to Austin, found a new therapist. And this is the elevator speech I was, I was <laughs> talking about. I sat down on my therapist couch first meeting um, after kind of spieling a little bit of my life story. And by the way, this was not my first time in therapy. This was just <laughs> the first time a therapist asked about my drinking. So we'll come yeah. we can circle back to that. Such an interesting little asterisk there. Yeah. Speaking of my life story, she said two things. She said, one, you're a love addict. And I said, what the fuck is that? <laughs> um, <laughs> you. And two, have you ever considered taking a break from alcohol? And I said, well, uh, taking a break from alcohol, even thinking about it makes me feel anxious. Mm -hmm. And she said, that's a sign. And I said, uh, fuck you. <laughs> How dare how dare. how dare you call me out on my truths? And um, from there on out, I was happy to receive the resources that she had that were more around sober, curious, gray area drinking, um, elective sobriety. That felt mm. really good to me. Looking back on it now, it totally would have made sense if she also recommended AA. Yeah. But the verbiage and, and the story around it felt more gentle and compassionate mm. going the sober, curious route. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So then what? So then it just, you waved a magic wand and it was done. Yeah. Now I'm here. No, I, uh, this is probably true with most people's stories too. I quit for about, well, first off, let me not sugarcoat how hard it was to quit. I, I had a calendar where I marked off days. I tried to get through 90 days and I remember around day three or four, and this is about like the fourth or fifth round. Mm. <laughs> I, um, Oh man, I, so in part of this becoming a therapist, I've been looking back on some of my old journal entries and I'm so happy that I, I kept them when I was in early sobriety. This is now, I lose track. It's either three or four years. Apparently it doesn't matter to me. What is time? What is time? Um, I've lost a few years because of, <laughs> yeah. So anyways, I, um, I was reading back on those journal entries and the amount of pain that I was 
hiding underneath the alcohol mm. came up so quickly and um like ferociously mm-hmm. <laughs> i i was itching for anything to make it stop mm. um i was very very lucky to be working with somebody who was specialized in trauma because i didn't think i had trauma i i bought into the idea that i had a roof over my head clothes on my back mm. I went to a few years of college, you know, a middle class white woman never occurred to me that I had trauma underneath what I was pushing down with using alcohol. So who got through working with a trauma therapist and getting to the root of my codependency, my love addiction, which yeah. Okay. No, I'm really not tangent on that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> I could and healed is a loose term, right? Um, it's more, it's like the same way that drinking is, is a recovery, right? You're always kind right. of, there's a flavor of it. There. It's always a choice on how you want to move forward, knowing that you're working with that wound. And then also the, the wound of, of being closeted for 27 years, not realizing that my story around my sexual identity is, is littered with trauma. Mm. Um, you know, I don't like big T, little T trauma. I don't like it. I don't like that people separate it that way, but you know, if you want to call it little T, that's fair too. Right. The the small cuts, the small cuts, which from a neuro standpoint is the same as a big T trauma. So, you know, yeah, I didn't go to war, but I also was told by people in the church that I wasn't strong enough to resist the sin of having a crush on a girl. Right. And that I was to my root, like a bad person. You know, we look at small T. Right. I mean, (laughs) we use air quotes. If you're listening to the podcast here, no big deal. You're just a terrible human. Right. And this was told to me in like fifth grade. Right. Right. And in fifth grade, you don't have the just brain development, much less autonomy to question that authority. Right. So I wore that around. For 20 fucking seven years, mm. you know, it took getting sober for me to begin to heal that. Mm. I didn't even realize I was numbing from it. Yeah. So let's talk about that as, as it is Pride Month and we are talking about being queer as hell this month. Tell us about how you came to be out and how you came to really rooting into the identity that you now wear as a queer woman and what do you identify as? Yeah. So maybe I didn't say that yet. And I've referenced my husband, so that might be confusing. Um, I am. I just look straight is what her. Yeah. I just look straight. The husband helps. Yeah. Yeah. The coming out story. This is people who have come out will understand when I say, I've had to come out a lot. There's been, I have a lot of coming out stories, right? I have the initial one that I tried to come out and then got shoved back into my shell. Mm. That was in fifth grade. I remember I, so the same time that little girls were having crushes on boys, I was a little girl who had a crush on a boy and a girl, right? Mm -hmm. So when people are like, you know, kids don't know who they want to have sex with at at that age. Mm. It's like, okay, sure. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure. But in preschool, we're over here, you know, being like, oh, is that your little boyfriend? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Okay. So um surprise, uh, even in our early ages, I yeah, I had crushes mm-hmm. on girls and boys, which was mm-hmm. confusing because in that day and age, which is weird to say I'm not that old, but in that <laughs> day and age, bisexuality wasn't a thing. Right. You were just confused or you were a whore. Now, fifth grade, I didn't receive that message, but I did right. receive I was I was a sin. Mm. Um, I would not be accepted into heaven. The devil was trying to get to me. There was something inherently wrong with me that I could not be strong enough. And I came out in fifth grade by writing a letter to a teacher. Mm. A day went by and she didn't say anything to me. I remember I left it on her desk and this is, (laughs) so I left it on her desk, went through, it was fifth or sixth grade. Now I'm, I'm backtracking, but anyways, a whole day went by, came and went, and I just died. I was like, this is yeah. such a bad idea. I can't believe I did that, right? I came back the next day. She pulled me aside after class. Did just about the most terrible thing that a, an adult can do to a kid, which was, um, this stays a secret between you and me. Ugh. This is the devil trying to get to you. Mm. 
you know, didn't tell my parents or um, offer me resources right. or because even if you wanted to stay in like a religious, like this is wrong, quote unquote, but no, no handholding there. Right. This is wrong. This is a secret between you. Don't tell anybody. Mm. And let's kind of pretend that this didn't happen. Oh my god! You need to pray it away. Right. Mm. Such a big wound for me mm. there. So I did. I shoved it down and I, I bought into the idea that I was not strong enough mm. to, <laughs> you know, now saying it's like not have a crush on a girl. Like, right. and you can almost hear the anger coming up a little bit. It's like, first off, who hasn't had a crush on a girl before? Okay. Totally. Women are gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> Get over it. Grow up. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, so that was my first experience trying to come out mm. in high school. I had a lot of gay friends. I was in theater and I bought into the message. I support you, hmm. but I'm stronger than you. Mm. Put myself up on a pedestal, right? Keep, kept myself safe. Meanwhile, I was, I had a secret girlfriend, mm. <laughs> you know, and yeah, secret girlfriend. That was probably like my first true love. Mm. I had a boyfriend at the time funny story he ended up coming out as gay so huh. uh, yeah right isn't that interesting so yeah, full circle full, full circle so I was a beard for him and he unbeknownst to him was a beard for me so amazing yeah <laughs> I broke her heart mm. I went off to college and told her that that was a mistake mm. and I uh, went off to college, did the thing, fit myself into the box that I was supposed to fit into, right? Got all the good grades, won all the awards, um, took all the officer positions, uh, played perfect daughter. Mm. Meanwhile, I kind of, that was the moment, that was a good time of when I split. I really split there. Mm. Here's who I am in, in public, the, my representative, and here's who I am in private. Mm. And I was only able to tolerate that split by drinking. Mm -hmm. When I stopped drinking, I was 27. So had some time out of college, mm -hmm. had my baby daughter. And I was struggling with the shame around my past relationships with women and my current attraction to women, mm -hmm. not being able to reconcile that, mm. still buying into the story that bisexual isn't a thing. Mm-hmm. And I think where, oh, oh, I missed a coming out story. I tried to come out to my therapist in Houston. This was the one before I worked with the one who called me out on love addiction and drinking. Okay. When I tried to come out to my therapist in Houston, she brought sexual transference into the room. Oh boy. So I shut down again. Like, and she didn't call it that, but she right. was like, it's really normal to develop feelings for your therapist. And I was like, what? No, what? No. So shut Can it we down. Not? I mean, she was young. I don't, mm. you know, and we can talk about competency when it comes to working with the LGBTQIA community, right. Right. but the, the, really the, the mark that she missed, it wasn't calling a transference that, I mean, that was a big mark, but the mark that she missed was helping me come out to myself. Mm. The acceptance piece. Right. Because I had to work through the shame before I could come out to anybody else. Right. And my own internal biases around right. queer folks. Um, so many stories to unpack. Right. That were all handed to me. Right. Right. I wasn't born thinking that I was wrong or broken or confused or uh, greedy. Right. <laughs> it's another story that comes with bisexuality. Right. Right. I wasn't born thinking that those, all of those stories were handed to me. And so I had to really parse out where did those stories come from and how much do I want to buy into them? Mm -hmm. turns out zero, zero mm -hmm. of them I buy into. Mm -hmm. It took some time to get there anyways. So around two or three years ago, I came out to my husband mm -hmm. who knew my, he knew about my past sexual relationships with women, but it was kind of eroticized or, you know, sure. for, for my own like he didn't do it so much as I did it. Right. right. So I could play it off as like, oh, I was just drunk, you know, totally. Um, a face. <laughs> the same way that we don't want ident to like, identify as like having a problem with drinking. I was like, I, I don't want to identify as bisexual either. Right. 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 
I just uh, slept with women and enjoyed it. Yeah. Slept with men and enjoyed it. Gonna keep that in this box over here. <laughs> Let's not call it what it is. Yeah. Uh, so interesting. And then a, a few months later, it came out publicly. We're publishing. So, yeah. Now I'm here. Hey, Zobra Stories crew, Beth here. While I moonlight as chief story steward here at Sober Stories, my main gig is actually using my therapy training, my decade in the mental health field, and my four and a half years of sobriety to teach other women how to change their relationship with alcohol. I just opened up an enrollment for my signature program, The Booze Breakup, built for the woman ready to ditch the nightly bottle of wine and build a sustainable whole person life without alcohol. It's a self-study program that comes with two months of access to my private community and group support calls, and I would love to connect with you over in that space. Use code SOBERSTORIES for $50 off the program at theboozebreakup.com. Rooting for you always, my friend. So what has it been like to fit all of those pieces together finally and and to be fully authentically you? Mm. Uh freeing Mm. absolutely freeing and joyful Mm. so i find this with uh, the work that i do with my clients it always tends to be like the same track this isn't like necessarily a treatment plan that i have for them but it just tends to unfold this way it's like first we work on the relationship with the self Mm. then we work on the relationship with others and then we have fun with it Mm -hmm. that's step three Mm -hmm. we get to enjoy it i've had a lot of fun being my authentic self mm-hmm. without the stories of shame shrouding it. Yeah. You know, every now and again, the anxiety comes up, but you know, wow, what night and day. You know what? That's one of the things that I teach in my coaching work too, is like, this gets to feel really good. Like this gets to be fun. This gets to feel really juicy and fulfilling and joy filled. And, and for me, it's not drinking specifically, but by proxy or to extrapolate to being your full authentic self. And for me, that is like being sober and and being like known as a sober person and known as a person who doesn't drink. And for a long time, keeping the story of that pretty hidden, like what actually happened and how much I was drinking and how much of a problem it had become, quote unquote. And stepping into the fullness of my story and all of the beautiful and the damaged parts of it and the pieces that brought me here today, it gets to be just joyful and free and light. One of the things that I wrote down is this idea of stories that were handed to us. And I think that there's such an interesting parallel with that and alcohol. So as you tell the story, as you explain who you are today, I mean, you went through two really big things. Not only did you get sober, but then you also came out as bisexual and started like living in this identity too. So how do you, how do you untangle these stories? How do you decide which ones are for you and which ones have been handed to you and which ones are not for you and begin rewriting your own stories? First, you have to listen to them. Hmm. That's a big piece that I, I'm only so aware of because I see my clients go through it. It requires getting really quiet when we're drinking or any other kind of like coping mechanism, right? Shopping, you know, I don't know, having kind of a dysfunctional relationship with food or sex Mm. or what have you, which, you know, scrolling through social media. I mean, endless amounts of coping, right? Something to busy ourselves, to keep our minds somewhere else rather than inward. You don't even hear the stories. You're just Mm. kind of on autopilot and functioning from what you've like painful past learning, right? Mm. When we can get really quiet and this is where, so I, let's see, I I got sober. (laughs) I worked through trauma with EMDR. I came out as bisexual and I got my yoga therapy license all within the same year. Cool. Don't recommend There's a baby somewhere in there too, right? Oh yeah. There's a baby. I had a six-year-old while I was doing all this. Yeah. Um, Don't recommend, but if you (laughs) want to fast track it, yeah, maybe, maybe shorten it down to like two, three, um, <laughs> uh, you know, that yoga therapy piece required me to, and actually more specifically, it was mindfulness-based stress reduction certification, um, required me to spend like two hours a day in meditation. Oh I got really clear yeah. on the stories in my head and then luckily worked with a trauma-informed therapist or, you know, using EMDR, or what have you 
um, to identify where those stories came from, mm. whose voice is that? And I, I talk a lot about this when we can identify the voice, then we can begin to parse mm. out. Is this even my belief? Mm-hmm. Do I believe this? Cause there are certain things in there that, um, I do hold dear. I do think are good stories. A lot of it was bullshit though. A lot of it's bullshit. Yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. I, right before this recording, and it's funny because in the last recording I did, we talked about how I'm watching the flight attendant and it's about a woman who she calls herself an alcoholic. And a lot of the story is her inner dialogue of all of this. And it's actually one of like the most accurate to my experience portrayals of like what this inner dialogue is when you're in such destructive drinking patterns. And then in the second season, she's sober. An hour ago, I discovered that the actress who plays the main character has started a campaign with Smirnoff called Vodka for the People. And it's a big sober, like, or not sober, it's a big summer drinking celebration, like boozy ad campaign about celebration and fun and summer. And I'm like, the amount of cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. that can exist in the world when an actress plays this very serious role portraying very serious challenges and and does it very well and very beautifully and i imagine in doing that it has to understand to some degree the impact of alcohol on at least this character she's playing and then steps into a boozy partnership with the big alcohol company. And I'm like, that's a story, like this story of celebration and of me versus them and all of these bullshit stories we have about alcohol and all these bullshit stories we have about the queer community. And how do we unpack that? And how do we learn that? And I cannot imagine sitting in meditation for two hours, by the way, that's a long time. (laughs) I get about like two minutes under my belt before I'm like, I'm going to go unload the dishwasher. (laughs) But (laughs) I like this idea of getting quiet in, and for somebody who's like, I don't really know what that means. Can you give like some tangible steps for that? Yeah. Hide your phone. That's my Mm. first step. Hide your phone from yourself. Literally go lock it in another room because, and I think that's part of the, you know, when we're looking at our phone, we're on social media. I think social media is great. It's how I met you. How you like, how I make a lot of my friends. Right. And also when we're talking about stories, it's stuff like that. It's campaigns or it's the news or it's somebody's opinion on the news and it gets kind of implanted to the point where it's like addictive, right? Mm, um, yeah, and, it, yeah. and I mean addictive in the way of like, this is a way to escape myself. Mm-hmm. So not just hiding your phone because you, it's distracting, but hiding your phone because you need a second without other people's stories. Totally. And then, yeah, so tangibly, if you would like to start, like how, how do I get quiet and hear my own voice? I always suggest five minutes of meditation followed by five minutes of journaling. Mm which I guess requires your phone, unless you have like a stopwatch. I don't know. But anyways, and, and then keep going like that, right? If that felt good, go in for another five. Also, I mean, guided meditations are great. Um, They're a great way to start out so that you can get comfortable sitting still, Mm. but then also understanding that meditation isn't about silently, like it, you know, I, I call it getting silent. It's not about stopping the thoughts. Right. It's about having really non-judgmental awareness of the thoughts. Mm. So instead of like, oh, I shouldn't be thinking right now, or why am I so worried about when I called my third grade teacher mom, right? <laughs> you know, or whatever kind of like weird thought pops up yeah. in your head, instead of creating stories around that, step back and be kind of like a third party observer, right? The gentle, compassionate third party observer. Oh, that's interesting that I'm thinking about that. Mm. Anyways, let's go back to focusing on the breath or Mm -hmm. whatever kind of, we call it an anchor in meditation. So sometimes that's the breath. Sometimes it's bodily sensation. Sometimes that's uh, the flicker of a flame on a candle. Sometimes that's a a guided voice, right? Mm -hmm. If you use like a headspace or any of those, those apps, Um, YouTube has endless numbers of Mm -hmm. of guided meditations, but um, those are really good starting points. The five minute practice is, is really fantastic. You know, I even think about like going for a walk and not having my AirPods in. That is like an uncomfortable mm-hmm. thought for me, not just because it's a hundred degrees in Texas, but like just the idea of, 
or even washing the dishes without my AirPods in and just Mm -hmm. having to be with my thoughts and me and nothing else. I, an interesting phrase I heard a while ago was the concept of single tasking instead of multitasking. Cause so many of us are so used to multitasking and doing all the things we're watching the TV while we're folding the laundry, while we're teaching our kids math, or we're listening to a podcast while we're washing the dishes, or we're always doing something times two. And Mm -hmm. then we never get a moment to just sit with ourselves and be in our own thoughts and to be quiet, even if we're actively doing something just to be quiet. And, and for me, that has been a practice of, okay, I don't need to listen to a podcast. I don't need to listen to an audiobook. I don't even need to listen to music. I can just be in my own brain for a minute. Mm-hmm. And it feels really uncomfortable. I'm still not very good at it. It feels very uncomfortable because I cope by busy and I cope by productive and I cope by consuming as much, doing as many things as I can at once to check as many boxes off my list. Which brings me to one of the things that I wrote down several times is this idea of strong, perfect, pedestal, all of these idealistic identities that we can take on. And I have many theories about the eldest daughters and the grade A students Mm -hmm. and all of this, (laughs) but tell me about how that impacted you, this idea of perfection, and then by proxy, all of the things that came from that. Yeah. You know, what's so interesting is I thought that I had it under control, mm-hmm. my perfectionism using being perfect as a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. And so when I talk about doing all those things, right, when I got sober, that's what, it, that was my coping mechanism. Yeah. Let me yeah. get all the certifications, take all the courses. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when I, I went back to school and then raised my GPA and got in, you know, I was just doing all of the things right. to busy myself and as a means to stay safe. Mm. Right. Because if I'm up here, if I'm on the pedestal, you can't touch me. Right. I thought I had it under control. And then I started training to become a therapist mm. and had to watch myself in recordings, Ugh. um, Brutal. counseling other people. Right. Yeah, it is. And, you know, people warn you when you go train to become a therapist, that stuff's going to come up. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I got this. I am sober. <laughs> I am vegan. I am a somatic yoga therapist. Like uh-huh. I, there is nothing that's going to come up. That's going to surprise me. Mm-hmm. Perfectionism did. Mm. And to the point where my, my professor, who's a psychoanalyst, <gasps> uh, <laughs> <laughs> people who don't know what that means, can you give a little cliff notes? Let me describe what a psychoanalyst is in an antidote. Okay. okay. My first, we call them marker recordings, where you have to record yourself counseling. And it's a real thing, right? It's like they're bringing a real problem to you and you are really trying to help them with this problem using the tools that you have learned as a counselor. I, so on Zoom, if you're familiar with Zoom, you can record to the cloud or you can record to the desktop. I accidentally clicked desktop. My psychoanalyst professor said, I wonder what it is about your subconscious that you did not feel safe to share this to the cloud, the cloud, but rather wanted to keep it private on your desktop. Ugh. That's a psychoanalyst in yes. a nutshell. Yeah, that is a perfect, perfect <laughs> description of psychoanalyst. This idea of the subconscious and Freudian based and nothing that. is <laughs> on an accident, right? Everything <laughs> is rooted in some past. Anyways, so so there's that. So I'm watching this with with my professor. And um, it, I might have fooled some students. There was only four of us in the class, but I might have fooled some students. I was not fooling her. Mm. She was like, okay, well, when you're ready to stop acting like a therapist and actually become a therapist, you let me know. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, sh- I'm performing. Mm. I'm, pro- I'm probably doing it right now. It's so subconscious. Mm. And that has always been my safety mechanism of if I can stay rather perfect, not too much not too queer, not too loud, not too weird, not mm-hmm. too uh, nerdy, mm-hmm. you know, what I, whatever it was in the environment that I was, if I can just be the best mm-hmm. <laughs> or at least like uh, number two or three, right, right up there, right. then I can stay safe. Yeah. And I, you know, when I talk to clients or friends who have the same kind of like, this is how I cope, 
Um, you know, the stories around childhood vary so much, but it all has the flavor of how can I help my parents keep it together? Mm. How can I be kind of you know, adult number three right. in this? Yeah. Man, I, uh, this idea of performing really sticks with me because I think I do it too. I think I can, well, I know I do it. I know I can turn it on and I can turn it off and mm. it's a coping mechanism. And my chameleon like persona, mm. which also I'm an Enneagram three wing two, which is like known to be a chameleon kind of person and able to fit in different situations and be different people depending on who needs me to be what. Um, yeah, it's totally a coping mechanism for me. And it's still a practice of acknowledging that, not, not pushing it under the rug, acknowledging it mm-hmm. and then course correcting and saying, okay, but, but I'm going to go this way. I'm going to do this instead. I'm going to do this more real authentic version of myself. Mm. Yeah. It's hard. It feels really scary. Yeah. Well, all of it feels really scary. It's like what you said about when you quit drinking, it's like all of a sudden you have to feel everything that you've been numbing down or pushing down with alcohol and suddenly it's all out in the open. And, you know, I think it's really interesting how so often we revert to other coping mechanisms if we're not even paying attention, because if we're not really paying attention, if we're not really tuned into it, we're so prone to just transfer addiction it and go somewhere else and do something else to, to cope that while maybe not as maladaptive as alcohol is, is really not going to serve us either. But tell me more about what it has been like now to be a bisexual woman and in a hetero marriage and a mom and like such a multifaceted person. And how do you allow your queer identity to be a part of that? This question, I struggled with this question a lot in my coming out process, in like my real coming out process. Sure. Why does it matter that I come out? Because mm. I don't want to leave my husband. I'm very much attracted to him mm. and enjoy our time together. I have no plans, future plans of, you know, well, when my kid grows up and moves out, then maybe I'll start dating again, right? That's mm-hmm. not, that was never on the radar. Um So I really struggled with like, what is it that I'm drawn to even put a label on this? If I am here now, what does it matter? Mm -hmm. Right. And what it came down to was, you know, anything that is secretive Mm -hmm. is shame. That why does it matter was not my story. Mm -hmm. When we look at like the facets of our personality, sexuality is a big one. Right. Who are you attracted to? Right. What do you like? What, what do you desire? What are you mm-hmm. passionate about? What turns you on? What turns you off? Right. When I shoved my sexual orientation in a box and hid it away, I also hid all the other stuff with it too. Mm-hmm. Right. I took the whole amount of my sexuality and put that away mm-hmm. and performed, right. This is what I'm supposed to like. This is right. how they do it in porns. And this is how I'm supposed to perform in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, and maybe this goes without saying, maybe not, I wasn't enjoying it to the full extent. Right. It wasn't until I could come out that I could actually begin to really like open up this box of exploring, yeah, what do I desire? Mm. What do I like? What do I not like? What, when do I need to speak up? Mm-hmm. Shifting my perspective from like, my body is not here for you just to enjoy but I actually get to enjoy it too, mm. which, you know, purity cultures, there's some yeah. of that in there too. Right. So in this coming out process, especially with my husband and I, um, I'm sure he'll really appreciate this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, he, he honestly might, uh, our, our connection has grown so much deeper. Mm. We have found more joy in our time together because I am able to be not performing, but authentic. Mm. It is so much juicier. Mm. It is so much closer, you know, and there's a opportunity there for it to be eroticized. I think that happens. Um, When it's not, it's fun. Mm. It's fun for us to get to be our full self. I think of it the same way of like, and this isn't an accurate um, comparison, but like, Let's say I, 
I love macaroni and cheese. That's just like my favorite thing, but I've got, I've had to spend my whole life pretending that I don't. Right. It's easy then to just kind of like bundle up other things too. Right. Like, Oh, maybe, you know, that offends you. So I won't. Yeah. I don't, Mm. you know what I'm saying? Like it's easy to kind of take the sum of things. Um, like I've, you know, sold this story that I don't like macaroni and cheese. And also then I guess I have to not like cheese and noodles Mm. and, you know, all the other pastas. So we, we bundle it up, we step it in a box and we don't ever get to look at it. And when you pull it back out again, you're like, actually all of these ingredients, sorry, I was told I wasn't supposed to like it. So I told you, I didn't like it. I actually do really enjoy this. And yeah. I enjoy this. Actually and- macaroni and cheese is the shit. So, you know, yeah. Well, and, and what I hear in this too, is like, you haven't missed the bus, like just because mm. this is something that is, being discussed later in your evolution of somebody who is especially like building a family, I think specifically, Mm -hmm. you haven't missed the bus. It doesn't mean just because you've hit X, Y, Z milestones, you're like excluded from the club because, you know, too late to should have, should have, would have, could have done that before. It's like, you still get to discover pieces of yourself. And if we want to like step back and extrapolate this, we still get to discover pieces of ourselves as we grow and as we evolve mm-hmm. and as we have the gift, in my opinion, of aging, do you think you could have gotten there if you were still drinking? No, absolutely not. And even so much to the point where I thought I was going to die closeted. Mm. Why not? Right. Mm. Just live with the shame and drink it away. Mm. Yeah, absolutely not. Man, that's crazy that like knowing you and knowing what a full vibrant person you are to, to think of that and what a detriment to the rest of us it would be. When I hear women to, you know, I kind of have to remember, yeah, I'm like a later in life coming out. When I hear or work with women who are struggling with this too, that's what I come back to. I'm like, Oh God, please don't die closeted. Mm. Like, Please don't waste another year with National Coming Out Day coming and going Mm -hmm. and you keeping yourself small and quiet and closed off because on the other side of this is so much pleasure Mm. and so much joy. And I think, too, there's this um, misconception that specifically bisexual women that like, well, then if you come out, then, you know you'll have to just change your whole relationship. Right. Yeah. And even when I came out, there was a fear there. Mm. Like it does my husband think that I want to leave him. Mm. Am I going to hurt him with this information? But withholding it was manipulative. Right. Which is kind of like a hard pill to swallow. Mm. (laughs) But me withholding information from him, especially such pertinent ones that was drumming up so many emotions that I was having to shove down was manipulative right here. Let me conform myself into this thing that I think you are going to love and not actually be my true self. It's really close to lying. (laughs) It's like lying by omission. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So when we take that into account, we're talking about like fear of the disconnection. There was no, that's not authentic. There was no connection anyways. Right. 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 Oh, this is so good. I could geek out with you about this forever. I know this mm. because we also have driven seven hours to Marfa, Texas, <laughs> talking about these exact same things. Yeah. But we like to keep these short and sweet for our listeners. So the last question I ask every episode is if your story, if the story of Victoria in its totality or any micro piece of that were to be written into a book, what would it be called and what kind of book would it be? I've thought a lot of this and I don't have a very good answer for you. And no, I do. I, <laughs> I struggled with this question. Cause I, I think, um, if it were going to have my story in it, I think it would act as a roadmap, right? Mm-hmm. Like it would serve a purpose. Like here's a piece of my story and here's the psychoeducation behind mm-hmm. it. Totally. I think so like memoir adjacent. Mm-hmm. I think it would be called like a woman adapting, mm. right? Like how we shape shift 
Mm. To feel safe. Totally. Yeah. It's like exactly what we talked about today. <laughs> Being a chameleon, perfectionism. Yeah. It's all in it. Yeah. I love that. Well, I mean, you know, I adore you. And we, anyone listening to this will know that Victoria and I are buds in real life, but I know my community is going to want to connect with you and know what's going on in your world and how they can work with you and what you have coming up. Uh, A little side note, Victoria and I do host retreats together, uh, but what is coming up in your world and where can we connect with you? Yeah. So, um, Instagram is there just Victoria underscore Towery. And that's where I do my yoga work. I do have yoga intensives, which is a new thing. Um, it, that sounds like you have to be like a yoga expert. No, you don't. (laughs) What it is, is a small group yoga therapy. So capped at about four or five women, two day to three days. So Mm -hmm. I have two different options, two different price points that are coming up where we really deep dive and you receive kind of more um, intimate care as far as how you can use this practice to alleviate things like um, grief, anxiety, stress, Mm. trauma. That's, those are the two key ones, I think. Right. Okay. Yeah, and you're you're yeah. on Instagram. That's usually where they can find you. What are your handles? Yeah, so Victoria underscore Towery is the yoga for healing. That's where I do my yoga work. I have since parsed out my clinical stuff as I move into my role as a therapist because I do want to just kind of ethically keep those mm-hmm. boundaries. Um, so keeping it very confusing, Victoria Towery underscore (laughs) is where I do my uh, clinical work, where I focus on talking about love addiction, codependency, betrayal, trauma, you know, all the good juicy Mm. relational stuff. Yeah. When you followed me from that account, I was like, oh no, she's been hacked. I know. (laughs) Well, Instagram thought that too. They blocked Uh me. They were like, uh, this doesn't seem real. And I was like, okay. I'm real. How do I, how do I prove to you that I'm real? I've had those same problems. I'm currently in a battle with TikTok because I accidentally signed up with a dot com email when my email is actually dot co. And oh, now we'll no. let me change it. And I'm like, oh, this no. email doesn't exist. You can look, it's not real. So now I'm like, well, how do I, how do I prove to TikTok that I'm <laughs> real and nobody at TikTok's talking to me? So yeah. Yeah. I think, I think my new clinical what a therapist handle. Um, Instagram hasn't been pushing out a lot of my content because mm. the word sex is in there a lot. So, uh, you know, I think they're know. like, she seems sketchy. We don't she trust seems her. Sketchy. It's like uh, this duplicate account and she talks about <laughs> sex a lot, like sketchy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, my friend. Well, I adore you. Thank you so much uh-huh. for sharing your story with us and allowing somebody else out there to see themselves in you and see who you have become, what you have become and say, Hey, maybe I can do that too. I appreciate you. Totally. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Sober Stories with me, Beth Bowen, and our guest, Victoria Towery. Victoria is one of those people who makes you feel so safe and seen when you speak with her, and I hope you took a little bit of that away with you today. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories, reach more people, change more lives, one good review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you shared it with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your big takeaways and you never know when we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories, Alexis Archuleta on the mixing and podcast genius side, Callie Williams is our community engagement lead, Daniela Marty for our graphic design, and every single person who has a hand in what we are building. Until next week, my friends.